0: Welcome to Get Naked with Dr. Kate. I'm your host, Dr. Kate Balistrieri, a Beverly Hills-based psychologist, certified sex therapist, and the founder of Modern Intimacy. Thanks for joining me here where I talk about sex, relationships, mental health, and dive into your questions with practical answers and real solutions. Each week, I share insights aimed at helping you build an authentic and healthy relationship with yourself, with others, and with your sexuality. It's time to get naked, emotionally, mentally, and on your own time, physically. Hi everyone, this week I am here on the Get Naked with Dr. Kate podcast with Crystal Hefner, who has a new book that is out today, and it is called Only Say Good Things, Surviving Playboy and Finding Myself. Crystal, thanks so much for being here with me and sharing your story. Thank you. Yeah. How did you get to a place where you felt ready to talk about and write about your experience?
1: Um I think it was a, f- a friend that encouraged me to write the story. Mm-hmm. Um, I had been in therapy for about five years, post-mansion life, and trying to make sense of everything, because mm-hmm. I feel that we didn't have certain terms back then, and that was pre-Me Too and everything. So yeah, just making sense of it myself, and then one of my friends said, you should really you know, tell the story. And life at the mansion was very public. So okay. I do feel that I owe it to people who followed along yeah. you know, the my, my story and my truth. Hmm.
0: That's interesting. You feel like you owe people who were following the fantasy of Playboy <laughs> the inside scoop. Can you say a little bit more about why?
1: Yeah, because, um, well, Hef, you know, he controlled the narrative mm-hmm. for – all those years, 70 years plus, ever since he had the magazine and the lifestyle, he controlled the whole narrative. And I think people that kind of followed him and followed me, they fit into that same narrative. And while all these people are kind of watching us, internally, like, this isn't what it seems. This isn't what people think it is. So I do feel that I owe it to those people to just let them know, like, what really happened and mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I I've met a lot of fans that have become friends over the years. Mm-hmm. So I feel that it's nice to have the story for them.
0: Yeah. And for you? What's it been like to write to write and share your experience?
1: For me, it's been definitely healing. Mm-hmm. And when I was at the mansion, at any time you feel like you could be replaced, at any time you feel like the rug could be pulled from under you, um is like 24 seven anxiety, but now I have nothing to hide mm. and nothing to lose. <laughs> so, so yeah, I, I just think it's the right time. Yeah.
0: There's been so much conversation in the last few years about what had, what really happened in the playboy world. And a. I've been curious because you've been more quiet about your perspective until recently, but how has it impacted you to see so many other people talking about a world that you had such intimate knowledge about?
1: Um, it was a little hard, especially, you know, sitting back and watching things like the A&E documentary secrets Mm -hmm. of Playboy and, Some things, some things I'm like, oh yeah, that's definitely true. That's definitely possible. That's another things I just felt were a stretch and I didn't really believe. So some of that was hard to, you know, just watch and like, okay, people need to know the truth. People need to know what really went on. Um, Yeah. So it was kind of from, from that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay
0: you talked a lot in your book about how it's been difficult for you throughout your time in the world, kind of navigating media and the struggles that you had mm-hmm. with media initially before you had any media training and experience. So I'm really curious about what your evolution in talking about your story has been like as you've been, as you've left the mansion, but also as you become more and more familiar with yourself and yeah. with what to expect
1: in interviews. Yeah. The media, I mean, I was, you know, a low hanging fruit for the media. Uh, they could ask me all kinds of questions. You know, there, I was a target, you know, what's it like being with an old man? What a all, old balls look like all this stuff where they could just, um, you know, I was a low hanging fruit. They could just make fun of me all they wanted. I was an easy target. Um, so that was hard. And, I did media training kind of in between it wasn't through Playboy it wasn't through Hef. Mm-hmm. I just felt I need help and nobody here is helping me mm-hmm. so I hired my own person and you know she did tell me she's like well when these people ask you things you don't have to answer and you don't have to fill dead space it's like those the their job and it, it made me feel more confident. I know that those are simple, silly things, but mm-hmm. I didn't have those tools. Like, I didn't even know, really know what a boundary was back then. Yeah. <laughs> and this is all pre me too. Mm-hmm. So it was hard. It was hard. And, you know, going back to your other question about the other people that wrote books and things like that, um, when Holly came out with a book and people were coming out with these different things against the mansion when I was still there.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I was team half Mm. like, Oh, these people are crazy. Or how could they say this thing, these things about a man who's done so much for them. Mm. And I was team half still. And I was, I was there even when these were coming out, it it took until, you know, it took therapy and years to finally get it Mm. and understand the truth. And it took me trying to date and move forward with my life. Which, you know, I'm like, wow, this place really messed with me more than I thought it did. Mm. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) I
0: can imagine it, it. So much of what you talk about in the book is really that common thread of having to disappear yourself in order to survive and basically stay in the mansion, which what it sounds like, and correct me if I've read this wrong, but. It sounded like for you, the mansion represented security and safety in so many ways, even though at times it felt over controlling or there were rules of engagement that felt really hard to understand or or be in compliance with. But can you talk a little bit about kind of what that was like and what about it did feel safe that had you kind of defending half for defending the mansion at the time and now what you see differently?
1: Yeah, so I th- I think in the beginning, growing up, I had you know unstable um, childhood. My, my my dad passed away when I was young, and my mom and I bounced around different places, different apartments. At one point, we were just in one bedroom in someone's house. So I think part of the allure for the mansion for me was just being somewhere where I felt like I finally belonged, mm-hmm. that I I felt wanted loved and somewhere that i can belong and sometimes i feel like that's you know really important even over love Mm -hmm. just feeling that you belong somewhere and when i first got to the mansion you know it was a beautiful home just there's carved wood i've never seen carved wood i've only been in you know apartments with drywall i'm like all this wood on the wall is carved and I have had pajamas in every single color of the rainbow. Just like, wow, this is amazing. It was, it's like Willy Wonka. You know, mm-hmm. you, you show up, you're like, whoa. Um, I just thought it was magical. I was on five acres of land in the middle of LA. And I'm like, wow, I'm going to do whatever it takes to stay here and be here and be important here. And so what I would do was just like everything that Hef liked. Mm-hmm. Oh, he wants to watch all these old movies. I'm going to get into all these movies. I'm going to learn all the actors and just love whatever Hef loves. Cause it seems like that's what he wanted. Mm. Now I know that that's narcissism. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I didn't back then. I'm like, oh, he's just quirky. And, um, so I just lost myself into, into him completely made myself small, f- you know, f- forfeited my own <laughs> needs and wants and desires and just a, just a, Feel that I belonged and have a place. But now that I'm more stable on my own, (laughs) I can't believe I ever did that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And Now if I ever get married again, I I don't want to change my name. I don't want to. Yeah. It's better now. I'm much stronger. Mm
0: -hmm. Speaking of names, you've retained the Hefner last name.
1: Yes. Can you say
0: a little bit about your thoughts around that? Yes. I do
1: get asked that a lot. Yeah. And the book happened so fast When I was at the mansion... After we got married, Hef Secretary Mary immediately started the mm-hmm. filings to change my name to Hefner because mm-hmm. that's what I've wanted. Mm-hmm. And I do remember that I had a friend that got married shortly after and she asked me like, oh, how do I change my name? I'm like, I have no idea. This is all done for me. It just... <laughs> wow. um, so all my social media started, you know, that's when Instagram came out and everything came out and so I was just Crystal Hefner across the board on everything and that's how it's been. So the years of therapy, the book, and now, now I'm faced with, okay, you know, I don't, I don't want to be tied to this man. I don't want to, I know I will forever because I was there for a decade and it's Mm -hmm. part of history, Mm -hmm. but I do want to go back to my original name. So, yeah.
0: I was wondering about about that as you think about finding yourself and getting to know yourself again. And you were at the at the mansion for a decade, and you <laughs> were so f- like famously known in this role and as somebody adjacent to have for so long. Yeah. It's undoubtedly impacted who you are and probably will be a through line, right, for the rest of your life, as it is for many people who get married and then leave that relationship and go, oh, oh. I'm learning so many new things about myself out of that relationship, right? It does stay with us. But because you had such a public experience, you know, it's really hard to assimilate that experience into who you are today and then run into people in the world who only know you in this sort of one dimensional way. So what has been some of your experiences? You're like leaning into a bit of a new evolved identity, but other people aren't meeting you there yet. I'm assuming they're not.
1: Yeah, I think it's taking a while and um, I think just me personally getting away from that for a while. Like, I bought a property in Hawaii and I've been spending a lot of time there and just kind of getting away from being around those kind of people that tie me so much to that place. Um, but its I, I feel like I'm still working on it. Which it's it's hard because this book is coming out and I'm just re- yeah. reliving everything. But once that's over, uh, then I'll go back to just being more quiet. But it's hard. It is hard, and I have been trying to figure out who I am. Mm-hmm. Um, it would be nice to have a family and be married. I spoke to a couple of matchmakers, and they had asked me like, "Oh, what are your hobbies? What do you like?" Mm-hmm and it was a question that i i felt dumb because i couldn't really answer i'm like ah i'm not sure <laughs> so then i so then i'm fumbling i'm like travel and so i'm like okay i'm not ready for this i need to <laughs> heal more find out what i like it's been it sounds simple like kind of dumb and simple but it's hard it's hard <laughs> it's like who am i what do i like i i don't know yeah
0: well that's part of what comes with being in a relationship that is so asymmetrical in terms of who is attuned to, right? And I was really struck in your book about how clear it was just the the magnetic force of attention and orbit that seemed mm-hmm. to follow half throughout the whole house and and I mean the whole world. Yeah. But really, I mean everyone had to disappear themselves and it sounded like there was so much neglect um of personality, neglective individuality, neglective attention for anyone who wasn't Hef. And that takes a huge toll on someone especially you were so young going through your early adult years there and really it's a huge formative time in our lives.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely um it was it was hard then going through all of that and just being somebody's shadow basically i think because i was just his shadow that my mind just focused on him and analyzed him a little Mm. bit um because we would go to disneyland and places like that you know he was a American icon and so mm-hmm. famous. And people will be like, Hugh, you're the man. Oh my God, Hugh, I want to be just like you and all this. And I'm like, yeah, he's, and in my mind, I'm like, I'm with someone cool. Right. And I was, but then after a while, I'm like, he's just a lonely, sad, he's like a lonely, sad little boy mm-hmm. that created this whole entire lifestyle and persona to fill this void mm-hmm. that he never filled.
0: When did you first start to see that? And what was that like for you internally to have that shift?
1: I think it was when he would open up and start talking about his parents and how they didn't really show love in the home with, with, that, with him and his brother or with each other. Um, when he started telling me sad stories of being in, lo- being in love when he was young or loving somebody or liking somebody a lot, he talked about a girl – in high school, he had a big crush on, but she went on a hayride with someone else. And then he spoke about going to the army and Millie, who he was engaged to, cheated on him while he was away. He came back and he still married her. Like, wow, he's had a lot of like heart, like heart, heartbreak, like heart smashing oh, yeah. <laughs> moments. And I think he tried to overcompensate for all of that when he started Playboy. And he would cry like it. He'd watch the same old movies with the same Dune love stories, and C- Casablanca was his favorite. And he would just cry, and it's sad. I'm like, you've seen this before, you know the, <laughs> you know what what happens, and yeah, he he would cry a lot during movies. It's like almost mm-hmm. sometimes he doesn't. <laughs> Between reality and fantasy, mm-hmm. the lines were probably pretty blurred for him at, at that point, but. Mm. He was a sad kind of soul and it took, yeah, it took time to realize that, but yeah. by the end I did.
0: By the end when you were still at the mansion or by the end of your healing?
1: Um By the end of the, being at the mansion. Yeah. Yeah. To, up until the, you know, the day he died. Like, I'm like oh, this is really sad. Mm.
0: You talk about in your book, the process of how you got married. And I think... For the people who weren't you and weren't living in the mansion, it was – it seemed like a whirlwind romance. It was like such a fairy tale. And of course it was designed to look that way. But what was the reality
1: of how that all came to be? Um, Honestly, I think he just wanted a good PR story for the end of his life. Mm. Um, Because as soon as Holly Bridget and Kendra left, it's like all of a sudden it's like, I'm dating twins. Mm. And then I came in the picture, but I, I do think it was kind of a publicity thing or I don't know, because we never really talked about being in love or mm-hmm. <laughs> those next steps. Part of me in the back of my mind always knew like, okay, this place isn't forever. This person's much older than me. So mm-hmm. just try and enjoy things while they last. But I, we didn't talk really about marriage. His secretary had asked me what kind of rings i like or what kind of shape of diamond like oh i don't know it was random one day i said oh maybe square and she goes oh round is much better because it sparkles more when the light hits it and that was it and i just christmas eve i opened a music box it was the little mermaid and there was just a ring in there and he said i hope it fits so it's like either i'm marrying this man or i'm moving out tomorrow Mm -hmm. which i wasn't prepared for that Mm -hmm. so it happened and
0: this was after you had left the mansion for a little while and you came back.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. After I came back. Yeah. Maybe he wanted to make sure I didn't leave again. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> like a faithful follower and <laughs> put him on the pedestal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah.
0: But you knew at that point you didn't really love him in the way that you wanted to love a partner, right? But you had a different kind of care.
1: Yeah, yeah. I I, I'm, I think I'm still trying to unpack that mm-hmm. because – I cared about him mm-hmm. and in a weird way, but I know he couldn't really love me in the way that real love supposed to be. Mm. I, mean, I think real love doesn't involve like multiple people in the bedroom and things like that. So I think he loved me the best way he knew how.
0: Yeah. Maybe the best way he would let himself love.
1: Yeah. <laughs> after
0: <laughs> that heartbreak. Um, So, You got married. It was a bit of a whirlwind. Like, What did it feel like for you on your actual
1: wedding day? It felt mm, very uneventful. Mm -hmm. The first wedding we were planning had like 300 guests. We were getting RSVPs from like Gene Simmons and Paris Hilton. And Mm -hmm. I'm like, oh, this is becoming a real hoopla. Mm -hmm. And I'm pretty introverted, so I wasn't into that. Um, so the second time around, it was just maybe 10 people in the great hall of the mansion. Mm-hmm. And they were asking about vows and things like that. And half was like, oh, you know, my back hurts. So the, the least time I have to stand up, the better. <laughs> like, this is so <laughs> weird. Uh, so it all happened so fast. And I wore a pink dress, which weirdly enough, I purposely chose pink. Because? Because I knew it wasn't real. And for my real wedding, I would want a white dress. Mm. Yeah. Weird.
0: There was some part of you that was really <laughs> self-protective
1: in those moments. They yeah, a very push-pull in my mind. Yeah. <laughs> I feel
0: it. Yeah. 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 So in in the years following you leaving the mansion, which you had to leave kind of abruptly after Hef's passing,
1: right? About six weeks or so? Um, yeah. So I remember... Hef had sold the company mm-hmm. in about 2011 and then the company sold the house. Mm-hmm. I think they needed the money at the time. They sold it to the neighbor for 100 million and then they they pulled me into the office and said if something were to happen to Hef, how long do you need to move out of here? Mm-hmm. And I thought, am I just moving my stuff? Cuz you know, that would be like 5 minutes. Most mm-hmm. of my stuff was in storage. I never felt at home there. Mm. Um but half stuff was just since 1971 just piled everywhere mm-hmm. um we asked for six months they gave us three months okay and so he died in September and we were out by December with everything all of that stuff mm-hmm. that's a that's a lot to move <laughs> in such a short amount of time yeah yeah when they asked me I I cried and I thought why are they asking me this it's terrible that they would ask something like this mm-hmm. but then he ended up dying like that year like oh well, I'm glad that yeah. that was put into place and
0: and you had already really taken to task this idea of like trying to preserve what you could and organize and kind of clear things away, and all of this was not your stuff,
1: right? Yeah, it was all of Hef's stuff, piles and piles and piles in the bedroom. The bedroom was carpeted, and there was just piles of stuff everywhere. And there's like little little walkways that you could still kind of get through. He was just the biggest type of hoarder. Mm. And I think part of it was just wanting to hang on to things. And the other part of it is feeling like everything he touched was like part of history and had to be (laughs) categorized and kept. But eventually I just started getting rid of so many things Mm. and cleaned it up and things were dusty and moldy and it was just not the cleanest place. Mm.
0: (laughs) What were your interactions with Hef like at that point in, in
1: the journey? Um, as he got older, he became more reliant on me. And I just felt like I couldn't leave him. If I was gone, he would have them, you know, the staff, staff in the downstairs call me and the security staff call me, like, Mr. Hafner's looking for you. The boss is wondering where you are. I'm like, wow, he needs me. Mm-hmm. There's not any other person he was doing that to or for. He didn't do that about his own family. So I'm like, he needs me. And at, at that point, I had enough money. Like, I was already, like, had few million dollars or whatever like I don't need to be there anymore but I still stayed there Mm -hmm. all the way till the very end
0: yeah yeah did it feel nice to be needed by someone who was so
1: revered (laughs) yes yeah it did and isn't that weird and kind of creepy because it's like I didn't have a life but I'm like oh somebody needs me like you feel but it's I think it just comes out of place of maybe selfish for for him. Like he's just, yeah. Still trying to unpack that. (laughs) It's a process, right? Yeah. yeah. So
0: you lived in this house and and in your book and you've said it today, like you didn't really feel like it was your home. There wasn't a lot of time where you could just be leisurely or have your own space except for the vanity closet area. Right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Even there, I just thought you could, you can see the gap under the door and like footsteps and shadows and mm-hmm. it was like sliding doors to Hef's room or the bathroom. And it didn't feel very private there either. There was, there was not really a place. I felt that I was, uh, had to be on 24 seven. Mm-hmm. So it was just this constant anxiety 24 seven for 10 years, yeah. <laughs> which
0: probably was awful for your nervous system.
1: Yeah. It probably contributed to getting
0: sick for sure. Yeah. Um, When you moved out and got your own place, what was the process of making it a home like for you since you lived in a space that was so not private and not homey for you for such a long time?
1: It felt very nice, actually, to just put up what I wanted to put up and not have people walking around 24-7 and having a kitchen that I could actually cook in because of the mansion you weren't really allowed in the kitchen. There were people in there that cooked for you. It was like a restaurant st- style kitchen. Uh, just feeling normal again was, was really nice and I appreciated it. And I think I like the quiet life best. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. What if anything, do you miss about that lifestyle? Nothing. Uh, I, I would say, I don't know. Nothing, really, actually. <laughs> I don't miss the parties. I don't miss uh, being cooked for, which is weird. Like, I don't. I always felt awkward. Like, the I'd have to call down for food, and then someone would bring it up on a tray. Like, oh, sorry, Sheila. Like, I could have come down and got it. You know, we're all the same. Like, I'm not, you know. But Hef didn't see it that way, you know. Yeah. These people are all here to serve him, and they'd be so grateful to be there. And Yeah, whew. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't know any of their names. They all worked there for 10, 20 years and yeah. You know, I don't know. Dear, dear. Oh. <laughs> Cuz he needed something on their way back out. And <laughs> yeah. You don't even know her name.
0: <laughs> Everybody was fungible. His yeah. girlfriends, the staff, yeah. other people in the world. Everyone was fungible.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. Hmm.
0: So what has it been like for you dating as you've like come into a
1: new chapter? Very hard. Yeah. (laughs) What are you running into? Um, I'm running into all kinds of problems. (laughs) Uh, I did find that I was in a relationship that was kind of controlling and the person manipulated me a bit. Hmm. And they were also in and out of jobs, so I was pretty much paying for mm-hmm. things and mm-hmm. trips and uh, but and I got to the point where I'm like, "Wait a minute, <laughs> this is just like the mansion, except I'm paying all the bills
0: yeah. <laughs> this is this is a w- way
1: worse scenario <laughs> <laughs> so uh that ended, and yeah, everyone has their stuff, but everyone does have their stuff um <laughs> Yeah, (laughs) it's a matter of cutting it off soon. Yeah, when you notice something, I'm usually the type where I notice something, Mm -hmm. and I'm like, oh, I can help them, Mm -hmm. or they just don't have the tools, and I can help them. Mm -hmm. Don't ever let them help themselves. Cut it off. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Don't waste your life. (laughs) Yeah.
2: Ladies,
0: did you know that one of the most common complaints from women about their sexual health is a frustrating low libido? Our sex drives can decline, but it's also treatable. Addy, or flibanserin, is FDA approved and has been clinically proven to increase sexual desire in certain premenopausal women who are bothered by a low libido. So if you feel like you've lost your desire and you want to get it back, stop falling for the snake oils and ask your doctor about Addy today or go to Addy.com. That's A-D-D-Y-I dot
2: Addie is for premenopausal women with acquired generalized hypoactive sexual desire disorder, HSDD, who have not had problems with low sexual desire in the past, who have low sexual desire no matter the type of sexual activity, the situation, or the sexual partner. The low sexual desire is troubling to them and is not due to a medical or mental health problem problems in the relationship, or medicine or other drug use. Addy is not for use in men or to enhance sexual performance. Your risk of severe low blood pressure and fainting is increased if you drink one to two standard alcoholic drinks close in time to your Addy dose. Wait at least two hours after drinking before taking Addy at bedtime. Your risk of severe low blood pressure and fainting is also increased if you take certain prescriptions, over-the-counter or herbal medications, or have liver problems. Low blood pressure and fainting can happen when you take Addy even if you don't drink alcohol or take other medicines. Do not take if you are allergic to any of the ingredients in Addy. Allergic reactions may include hives, itching, or trouble breathing. Sleepiness, sometimes serious, can occur common side effects include dizziness nausea tiredness difficulty falling asleep or staying asleep and dry mouth see full pi and medication guide including box warning at addy.com forward slash pi or call 844 pink pill go to addy.com and use code get naked
0: for a ten dollar telemedicine appointment to find out if addy is right for you valentine's day is right around the corner and i am so over roses and chocolates It's no secret that consuming a little THC can help set the mood in the bedroom, but getting that right strain and dosage can be difficult. That's why I'm so thankful for today's sponsor, VIA. VIA's developed a unique blend of pleasure-enhancing cannabinoids, libido-strengthening herbs, and a low dose of THC all into one mind-blowing gummy called High Love. We're talking about pairing aphrodisiac herbs with a mild amount of THC. Their best-selling high-love gummy will awaken your senses, increase blood flow, and intensify any sexual experience. VIA also offers a wide array of other gummies with and without THC, each with their own unique strengths and effects catered for your routines. And the best part, VIA can legally ship to all 50 states with discreet packaging directly to your door you don't even need a medical card. So if you're over 21, you can get 15% off and a free pack of award-winning Dreams THC and CBN sleep gummies. So let the gummies work their magic. Head to viahemp.com and use the code Get Naked to receive 15% off and one free sample of their Sleepy Dreams gummies. If you're over 21, that's V-I-I-A-H-E-M-P.com and use code GETNAKED at checkout. Take your passion and your pleasure to a whole new level with high love from Via Hemp. I read something today that said, I can't remember where, it said women should not set themselves on fire to keep other people warm. Oh, yeah. And I just thought, yes, that's so smart because women are so conditioned to just be giving and giving and giving and giving, especially to men.
2: Why and, do, do that?
1: <laughs> well,
0: Patriarchy. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. Yeah. 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 But I was curious with you, with your experience in dating, um, how do you even meet people one and have you experienced men sort of wanting to date you because they actually want a slice of the playboy life,
1: not crystal in real life? Interesting. Yeah. Um, I talked to Kendra recently from the girls next door and she had that problem where they wanted to date her and it's like just because she's part of Playboy right. and they were curious. You know, they didn't really like her for her or want to get to know her. I haven't – unless people hide it really well, I haven't really come across that problem. Okay. Um, I've come across a problem where like I end up being somebody's sugar mama, but I'm not letting that happen
2: anymore. <laughs> um <laughs>
1: And then, uh, what was the other
2: part? I was yeah, like, just,
0: do do people treat you as a human now uh, or are they still sort of engaging with you because they remind you, remind them of a fantasy and they
1: want some sort of access to that? I think for the most part, it's, um, just wanting to get to know me hopefully. Uh, but I do have friends that I thought were my friends mm-hmm. and then like, oh, okay, they just, they're just trying to use me to, for like whatever they think I can do for them or help them mm. with. And that's really hard because it's like, I don't really, I'm not part of any big corporation or I can't get anybody any access or anything. I don't even do any of that stuff. Um, uh, but, oh, but I think the other thing you asked was, where do I meet people? Yes. Yeah. And the relationships. I I mean, I don't, I barely go out like in the wild. Like, I don't know how to (laughs) meet people in the wild. So I use online okay. dating. I've tried a couple matchmakers that ended horribly. Oh no! Oh my goodness! What happened? If you can, should say? I spill the tea? <laughs> yeah. Oh, <laughs> uh, I was sent on one date. They're like, "Oh, they're flying here, and you'll meet them at the Beverly Hills Hotel." And um, he's flying here just to see you, and he's a celebrity, uh, but he's not an actor or a singer. Well, who does that? And they, they don't, yeah, right. I'm like, <laughs> they don't give you pictures. Mm-hmm. So now I'm like, I need to see a picture of him. Mm-hmm. So I go in there, and then this guy comes up, and I'm like, his face looks familiar. Okay, and it was Papa John Pizza. That guy? Oh, the guy John, who owns it? Yeah, John Schnatter. He was in all the commercials, like oh. Papa John's better oh. ingredients. Papa John's. <laughs> 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 And we're like having this conversation <laughs> about, like, how to make the best pizza. And if you bite it, like, then pull, the cheese shouldn't all come off. It should stay on the rest of the piece. And I was like, oh, how do you like to be addressed? Like, how should I, what should I call you? And he's like, oh, most people just call me Papa. <laughs> and after that, he's so nice. But he's older. Yeah. So I'm like, oh, is everyone just trying to throw me to older guys? He's older, wealthy men. Yeah. So then I went on, I'm hmm A- And... My relationships have been from Mariah. Okay, and it's been uh, like one out of three have been good. Okay, (laughs) one out
0: of three. That sounds about right
1: with what (laughs) most people would say. But it's a great app. Yeah, for for, in my opinion, it's a great app. I don't know if you've heard of it or I have heard of it. On it, yeah, yeah. I'll plead the fifth.
2: <laughs> yeah,
1: I, yeah, it's been cool. There's a lot of um, people you wouldn't want to meet on there, but there's some good ones. Yeah, I think that's true with with any of the apps and in the wild. Yeah, dating is hard. It is. It's really hard. And then I'm also like dating different ages. So I'm mm-hmm. like, okay, are these people more mature than these people? It, so before <laughs> before you were with Heth, you had some more like age
0: appropriate folks. Yes, like, age appropriate. I don't even like that word, but age yeah, similar. Yeah, yeah. age similar. Yeah. And then such a big disparity in age, obviously, with Hef. And so now, like, when you say you're dating people from different age groups, what feels comfortable for you? What feels interesting? What feels edgy or uncomfortable?
1: Um, I don't know how to explain that all the way. I, I did meet somebody who was 24. Okay. Which is very interesting because they, they wrote to me on Raya – I looked at their photos, you know, I thought they were cute and Mm -hmm. whatever. And then I realized I looked at their age and I wrote to them and I said, Hey, like you're, I'm older than you. Mm -hmm. And then he just wrote back. I know like he didn't care. And so I'm like, okay, I'm not going to mention it again.
0: Okay.
1: And so we went on a few dates in New York and he was just so sweet and so kind. And I feel that, I don't know if it's like, what I say, generation. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I feel the people the same age, We grew up with such misogynistic culture and movies, you know, a lot of the songs. It was just bad. Mm -hmm. And so I think, if anything, you know, I'm not, I'm not dating the person now or anything, but it really taught me something where, you know, people that are younger, they're, um, more respectful Mm -hmm. and it seems more equal, Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, so that was just kind of a breath of fresh air, kind of a nice yeah. little lesson. But um, lately, I've been dating somebody that's the same age or one year older. Hmm. Okay, and it's nice. It's yeah. nice dating someone close in age because you can have all the same references and right. Like oh, Nickel the ni- What Nickelodeon <laughs> shows did you watch? Like, I half wouldn't even know what Nickelodeon was. <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, it's been it's been interesting. Dating is very interesting. Yeah.
0: What about um, your friendships? So in choosing to write this book, have you lost any friendships? Have your relationships been strained or have they been
1: improved? Um, I probably met, I don't know how many girls, thousands at the mansion. And Mm. maybe I have three friends from it. Mm. And female friendship was very hard there. Mm -hmm. So now I am meeting more people and just trying to meet new friends. Mm Mm-hmm. Hang on to the old, but meeting new friends and 2024 for me is having stronger boundaries mm-hmm. and getting rid of the people that I feel I'm really there for them and it doesn't feel reciprocated. Yeah. So I'm working on friendship this year. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah, Friendship is so key. It's like, it's literally the thing that keeps us alive in many instances because we are so... Prone to isolation in such a digitized world, and then if you put all of your stock in romantic relationship, if that one, if something happens to that relationship, it really does leave you kind of un, unmoored.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's really sad. It's really hard to bounce back. That's I've definitely had that happen to me. It's
2: hard. Mm-hmm.
0: You mentioned that you had a conversation with Kendra a little while ago. I'm curious, do you keep in touch with any of the other women who have been in the mansion?
1: Um, mostly Kendra. Mm -hmm. She, I like her attitude that Mm -hmm. she's just, you know, whatever, whatever happened, happened. Yeah. she's fine. Mm -hmm. And, um, the other two girls, Holly and Bridget, uh, they're, they're a little bit more defensive and Mm -hmm. you have to be careful what you say. If you say the wrong thing, then they will be upset at you. So it's, Mm It's, it's hard. I, there, we had some discrepancy about dog birthday parties. Mm. (laughs) What? I know. So then Holly decided to be mean to me again and we're not talking. I wish we would all get along, but. But that wasn't the nature of that
0: experience, right? Women were pitted against each other. It was part of what I imagine created a lot of, um, affirmation for heff that he was desired when other women were competing for his attention
1: yeah and I think that got ingrained into some of these women in mm. such a cellular level mm. because with Holly I'm like just stop it mm. just just get along mm. it doesn't matter you know whoever was a, a playmate or a bunny or was there for a day or for mm. <laughs> 10 years just everyone's cool we all had our reasons for being there and let's just Let's just all get along. It would be really nice.
0: Well, I imagine everyone's on their own journey, making sense of what their experience was like and how to think about healing and how to think about like incorporating parts of that life into where they are today. Yeah,
1: I understand that, and I, I just know that I don't think she's ready to like accept me as like a friend or anything like that. Yeah. That sucks. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> yeah, I
0: remember reading in your book that you were talking about how um in the filming of The Girl, I think it was filming of Girls Next Door, where there were just these like contrived um and fabricated tensions put out there between you
1: and Holly and it was so made up. Is that part of what kind of contributed to this? I think so. Yeah. I think so because I don't think she realized it was made up at the time, but mm. I remember doing my playmate shoot and they had given me a hat and mm-hmm. it had Holly in the hat. Just um, like the, the like word the be- or be- like, like, the- like the berries, berries? or whatever. Okay. they. <laughs> <laughs> and so then they did like the record scratch noise and showed it on my hat. And it was so embarrassing. And then uh, another, another time the producer had me say, you know, like I'm not the new Holly. Holly's the old me. And I'm sure that got to her because then she was saying some things like they asked, um, the, oh, they, her daughter's name is Rainbow. And they said to her, Isn't that a stripper name? She said, Oh, no, a stripper name is like Crystal. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. i <gasps> like, oh, How old are we? Wow. I'm almost 40, so I don't know how old. Yeah. Come on now. It's like, mm. Okay. Hopefully, we'll all get along. Hopefully. Eventually,
0: I think 2024 <laughs> is going to be the year of female rage and female healing. Like there are so many women who are already starting to unpack and look at the world of misogyny and objectification and patriarchy and all of that and they're – angry. They're seeing like how much of a grift it's been for themselves, their relationships, their friendships. Even a lot of mother-daughter relationships are so strained by all of these misogynistic influences that people are conditioned into from birth. And I'm really curious, like, as you've been unpacking and learning, like how how have you been seeing the world differently based on your experiences at the mansion and the healing work that you've done how's it impacted the way you like feel
1: safe or <laughs> don't you know uh, i think i'm definitely in the anger phase mm. as well because you know i hide from it cuz you realize it's everywhere. everywhere the misogyny it's disgusting yeah it's everywhere and i honestly stick to watching like disney films because <laughs> You put on something and it's like the toxic male gaze and I just turn it, turn it right off.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You had this really great phrase in your book. You were talking about that male gaze, not in the context of movies per se, but, but in the context of witnessing it with a young girl that you were neighbors with and the look on her face when you realized what had happened to her, you said she was simultaneously haunted and hunted. And it was an expression you recognized in her, and so many of the other girls in your experience. And can we unpack that a little bit more and talk about like what that does that look like? What does it feel to see it? And is that what you mean by the male gaze and sort of the
1: impact? Yeah, yeah. I think um, it kind of gave me like thinking back to that poor girl. Yeah. Um, Yeah. There, there is a there is kind of this look and this this kind of vibe and a lot of girls that came through the mansion you know they were lost Mm. i was lost yeah and i think a lot of them were just because of being so lost they were just very easily manipulated Mm -hmm. so you feed into the misogyny and feed into whatever might get you some attention or admiration or love or anything mm-hmm. you just you you're part of it you become part of the problem i was part of the problem mm-hmm. i was posting you know bikini pictures boobs out butt out like completely contributing to this you know f- follow my friend who has the same kind of pictures and that's how my instagram grow mm-hmm. grew just toxic appealing to okay yeah it would be like super bowl sunday and i'm like a Almost naked but a hashtag Super Bowl mm-hmm. <laughs> and then the, I got twenty five thousand new followers <laughs> and so I was contributing to that and I I am embarrassed to have contributed to that but uh, I'm glad that I am now aware mm-hmm. and I feel like a lot of people are still working on the awareness part I think so too and you bring up an
0: interesting point uh, and it's something that I hear a lot from I'll just say male trolls online who uh, don't like that women are seeing things differently and starting to show up differently and ask questions and push back. But one of the claims that I see a lot and I hear a lot from male trolls is what about women's accountability? Women are doing this too. And I have such mixed feelings about, I have such mixed feelings about it and, and about what you just said, right? Because were you a part of the problem Maybe. Right. And I I wonder about how much of like what's the line between taking accountability and stepping away from a system when we see it, but also surviving in a system and doing that the best way that you know how. And now being blamed for it. You know, there's so there's such a deflection that gets put on women, so much victim blaming and, and yeah. slut shaming that I think detracts from a lot of what would be well-placed accountability yeah.
1: in men. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess we do. We are hard on ourselves. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't seem like men are. Hard on themselves.
0: No, <laughs> no. <laughs> not the ones who probably would benefit from a little bit of reflection
1: yeah but i feel that a lot of those men are not going to do that mm-hmm. they're not going to have that reflection yeah. you know a lot of men that were at the mansion they don't i know that they're gonna you know stay toxic forever mm-hmm. um, one well-known actor that would frequent the mansion he said to me like Oh, yeah. So can we recreate that vibe at my place? (laughs) What? I had another actor that I asked me to go to lunch because when Hef was still alive saying, you know, he needs to pass the torch to someone and it might as well be me. Wow. And these men, it's so ingrained in them in a cellular level that they're never going to change, in my opinion. Yeah. It's become part of who they are to just be gross. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Well, (laughs) I think, you know, they're, they're humans like the rest of us, but they have been so, um, conditioned to experience like proximity to women as a, um, a marker of their success as men. And so they don't even, I think, I mean, I work with a lot of men who are like this and when they first come into therapy, they don't really even understand how they're objectifying women. They don't. They don't get it. And I do believe that they don't get it. And it takes a long time for them to realize just how subtle and implicit the ways that they think about women and treat women are in perpetrating these systems of, you know, sexism and all the things.
1: Absolutely. Because once they learn, they're going to attract better quality women. Yeah. They're going to attract. Yeah. You know, women that respect themselves more don't want to be around men like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, those men don't respect themselves either. True. You know, they're, True.
0: They're, they're, that, that's the, part thing. the problem. Yeah. Like water meets its level. So when you have people who are defining themselves by how many women they have proximity to, and you're going to have women who are also defining themselves by. You know, being desired by men in those positions of power, but when both men and women or people of any gender say, "I'm actually good," I'm actually good without all of that external validation, yeah. they start attracting and aligning with people who also feel
1: that way. Yeah, and the pre the pre um, healed people or the people that didn't don't realize that yet, like the that was the crew that was at the Playboy Mansion parties, <laughs> like those type of men and Women, Yeah. For sure. Yeah. You have a really awesome quote in your book that
0: I want to (laughs) read. I read it and I was like, damn, Crystal dropping it. This is so good. Okay. You said, power is insidious when it masks itself as generosity. And generosity is insidious when it's a camouflage for control. And both power and generosity are confusing when they gaslight you to believing they could be love. (sighs) Oh. i know i read that and thought wow this woman
1: has healed she gets it now i feel like that was the definition of half yeah you meet him and he's smiley and generous and kind but the power imbalance is massive Mm -hmm. and yeah Yeah. all the darkness follows and it's it's just like that. And I think that's part of the magnetism and what sucked me in. Yeah, for sure.
0: It's hard not to get sucked in because that kind of energy, that kind of behavior, it's it's so ingratiating. And we really want to believe that people care about us. And we want to believe that they're magnanimous, especially when we attribute so much power to them and so much idealization, right? We don't want to see people that we think are great
1: as people who could also do really hurtful things yeah absolutely and during the time I met him you know it was pre me too and pre like a lot of these things that I just didn't realize then so I think the manipulation was a little easier but sad I'm like I fell for it (laughs) (laughs) I don't
0: know one woman who has not had one of those experiences
1: (laughs) yeah
2: Hmm.
0: So when you think about um, yourself today, in the book, you said something like, um, I was the person who trusted first and asked questions later, right? So how are you working on creating an approach for
1: yourself that is discerning but also not closed off? I'm still trying. Yeah. It's hard to trust people. Then I start opening myself up and start trusting people and then something bad happens again. Mm -hmm. So I think it's a a you know, process to, to do a lot of things, work in work in progress. Mm. Well, what would you like young women
0: or girls to know about how they see themselves, how they relate with their bodies, how they kind of establish a sense of
1: self based on the experience that you've had in life? Well, I think having a good sense of self is really important. And I didn't have that. Mm. And I think because I didn't have that, it was e- easier for me to be manipulated and molded into something that I wasn't. Um, the goal of the book, honestly, for me was um, when, when I first started talking to the publisher, I said, you know, I wish when I was 21 before going in that place, like I had a book like this to read. Mm-hmm. So I want to write the book that I wish I would have written when I was 21 before I went into the mansion. And I feel like I accomplished that with mm-hmm. this. And I do hope that it helps young women. I hope a lot of young women read it. And I hope it helps with their sense of confidence and that they don't need anyone else to dictate yeah. their worth to them. That It comes from within. And when people feel that from you, they respect you more. Mm-hmm.
0: It also isn't something that can be taken away from you. When when you feel empowered and it literally comes from within, it is yours. It's a source. It's a fuel. But power over someone else is vulnerable. It is fleeting, it's precarious, and that's why so many people have to continuously have power over someone because they don't feel intrinsically, you know, like wow. they are okay. And so that's one of the big takeaways that I had from reading your story. I really loved the the reflection at the end of your book. Spoiler for anyone who's listening. (laughs) Um, When you were going through the scrapbooks and you noticed one letter to Hef, and the question was from a young girl who I think was 12 at the time. And she was asking, like, what do I have to do to get in to the Playboy Mansion? And your reflection, can you share it?
1: What, what is the cost? It's hard. It's honestly hard for me to re- reread that without crying every mm. time. Yeah, um, but there would be letters from girls at all all ages to have, and I think as young as eleven, wow. a girl said, "Oh, I, you know, my mom got me a Playboy bedspread, and I can't wait till one day when I'm older to come to the mansion." And uh, one another girl who was a bit older than that, but still not eighteen. Asked what they had to do to get into the mansion. Mm -hmm. And what I had said in the book is that you have to lose yourself, Mm -hmm. which is true. It's very, very true. And I think a lot of girls, a lot of those hopeful girls didn't realize any of that. It was all just to them watching the girls like sort of some kind of fantasy fun life, but you completely lose yourself and it takes so long (laughs) to get yourself back and i'm still working on that. Yeah. It's a process and it was hard and i don't recommend it to anybody. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the cost
0: is great. The cost is great. I mean, it's very much you one of my favorite movies is The Little Mermaid too. You talk about it uh, in your book. So good. Um but you talk about how you you would have given your voice away to sort of have this life and in an, in a
1: way you did. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. I did and now i'm finding it again. Mm-hmm. You know, it was kind of for me to write the book just with the publisher and collaborative writer it was more of um a quiet kind of experience mm-hmm. but now being so introverted and everything it's it's hard and i'm i'm getting out there and i'm using my voice that i i didn't use before i was just a shadow mm-hmm. behind somebody um so it is hard mm-hmm. I'm not the best at doing this, but I'm showing up and I think it's important. Uh, So I'm using my voice. I started my own podcast for specifically that, like just Mm -hmm. to try and use my voice and yeah, just heal (laughs) and hopefully help other people along the way.
2: Yeah.
0: What has been your relationship with your own sexuality since you've been really challenging the male gaze and sort of challenging your ideas of, what it meant to be beautiful in that context and now today. So how has your sexuality been influenced?
1: It's been hard. I think it's still a struggle. Mm. It's still a struggle to feel confident. Um, Yeah, it's really... I mean, you know, usually I'm around 120, 125 pounds. I'm like one between like one, I'm like 132 or something. And I'm like, called myself fat probably multiple times. (laughs) Like, why am I doing this to myself? It's, it's terrible. And I need to just work on being happy. Um, I did get like my implants removed and anything I could reverse in that way. Mm -hmm. Um, I have scars, but now I just... If I, when dating, if I sense like a hint of anything mm-hmm. that's a little bit off, like it'll be over. Mm. Like I'm very, I get very triggered. Yeah. Um, I'll even go out of my way as like test them a little. And <laughs> but uh <laughs> Yeah, the most recent person I'm dating, I was like, oh, what do you find attractive like on a woman? Like, are there certain body parts or Mm -hmm. like, what's he going (laughs) to (laughs) say? What shouldn't he say? (laughs) (laughs) Well, his answer was, um, oh, you know, I've i am really drawn to people that have just like a really nice face. Mm. And I'm like. Okay, you pass. Yeah. <laughs> you pass. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, someone's like, "Oh, I really want like a, you know, I really a an ass man, or I love big boobs." I'm like, "Well, okay, well that's not me, and I don't have that." And <laughs> so, I'm like, so then you feel like if you if they say something you don't have, you then you feel like you're like ha, don't have value, and goes mm. back to being, and I I feel like because. It was ingrained in me to be so shallow and physical and stuff. When I meet people, I'm like, okay, like I've dated guys that are like, look like models. And then it's like dating, uh, not so much, but they're better people. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm trying to unlearn the stuff that's been ingrained in my mind and Mm -hmm. see past, see past physical. (laughs) it's hard in a a culture that
0: so reinforces the physical despite all of the language and the conversations that we're having about imperfections being beautiful and body neutrality i mean it's just something i think a lot of people have an ongoing conversation with themselves about
1: well yeah because sex still sells Mm -hmm. um people that are you know subjectively like more attractive or beautiful or young like get the job mm-hmm. or get together other things. So how do we change that?
0: Yeah. It's a great question. <laughs> it's a great
1: question. I think that's the next big part. Mm-hmm. Like how do we do that? But we
0: are seeing in 2023, I think there were, um, I, think I read somewhere it was like the year of the, the women in their fifties. Like there were just so many women in their fifties who were, using their voice. They were in the spotlight. They were like basically refusing to be invisible, which is something that so many women historically have felt once they are not young and whatever, that commodity of youth is no longer something that, that is available, but I'm seeing women left and right saying too bad. We're here. We have something to say and we are not used up. We're not expendable. We are valuable humans on this planet and i am here for it i,
1: I love, love that it. and i have been seeing like um you know models that are not in their like 20s or 30s mm-hmm. like i've been seeing you know makeup ads and different things like that and it is cool mm-hmm. it is very cool and i hope that there's there's more of that me
0: for sure me too <laughs> anything else you want people to know about you as you're finding yourself like um, who is crystal gosh i think
1: crystal is a work in progress i
2: think i
1: think i will i will always be Mm -hmm. like it's nice to learn and grow and yeah i'm just you know i'm happy to be here and happy to be on with you and yeah i hope i hope people take away some lessons from the book that can help them in their own lives well thank you thank you for
0: coming on the show and talking so candidly
1: yeah thank you so much All right,
0: everyone, we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to Get Naked with Dr. Kate. Stay connected with me on Instagram and TikTok at Dr. Kate Balistrieri. Everyone has questions and I want to answer as many as I can. So feel free to email your questions to question at If you're looking for a free 30-minute consultation with me or someone on my team, visit modernintimacy.com. And don't forget to join our newsletter, Modern Intimacy, on Substack. Let's meet back here next week. A new episode drops every Tuesday. Disclaimer, this podcast is not a substitute for therapy and does not constitute a professional relationship with Dr. Kate Balistrieri or Modern Intimacy. This podcast is strictly for education and entertainment purposes only.
2: Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death